The FIFA World Cup is the crown jewel of the world's most popular sport. 32 teams come together for 64 games in the pressure cooker. It's the pinnacle of a player's career, and that means they turn it up a notch. Over the years, passionate crowds have been treated to stupendous goals and head-scratching, hilarious moments aplenty. The headlines write themselves. Thank you for joining us for an explanation of some of the most striking ones. Do you have a favourite World Cup, Ben? Oh, 98. It's it's one that I watched on VHS time and time again. I probably didn't watch it live. I was a bit young, but who doesn't love a World Cup? The, the vibrancy of Brazil and the Netherlands, you know, the surprise routes into the knockout stages for the likes of Senegal back in 2002. Um, and then, of course, you've got all the very best players on show. Um, but, but what I actually love more than anything is these headliners, these one-off moments that that surprise everyone and make the back pages be it a brilliant goal or a terrible mistake or or maybe just someone who's come out of nowhere and earns an incredible transfer to the Premier League uh, that's what I love about the World Cup absolutely we're employing a 3-4-3 formation today very attacking we love to attack we don't like to sit back i think the left and right sides of this team are pretty much attackers so uh it's going to be a, a lot of premium placed on those three defenders yeah i think it's almost like we're assuming that we're needing to overturn a three goal deficit in the final group game and this is our starting lineup at 11 pod get your players into us nostalgic ones obscure ones but all world cup headliners we'd love to hear from you Arthur, whether it's South African sticks in 2010, English sticks in 1966, who is in between the World Cup sticks in the World Cup headliners of Evan? It's Spanish sticks in 1982. Ooh. Uh, Harold Schumacher. Oh, wow. Yes. An unfortunate incident that. A bit of a villain, but he certainly did make the headlines in that World Cup semi-final in Seville. In 1982, it's 1-1 between France and West Germany. Michel Platini lobs a pass through the centre of the German defence and Patrick Battiston is through on goal. And suddenly the German goalkeeper Schumacher is in his eyeline. He nicks it past the goalkeeper and then is absolutely steamrolled by him. Three broken teeth, cracked ribs, damaged vertebrae, half an hour unconscious, drifting in and out of coma. Incredibly, this act of violence yielded no red card, no yellow card, not even a free kick. And so we see this pantomime villain, hands on hips, waiting to take the goal kick. Harold Schumacher is, I don't know whether he's oblivious to what he's done or whether he is simply unapologetic for it. Referee Charles Corvair Uh, missed the incident entirely he said unfortunately I did not see the collision because I was following the ball which went just wide of the goal I immediately asked if my assistant referee saw it and he told me that in his opinion it was not intentional therefore I could not do anything when a journalist briefed Schumacher on the extent of Battiston's injuries he said he'd pay for his dental bills so it's I mean it's really that unapologeticness he was machine-like Tony Schumacher extinguished a cigarette on his own arm 
to demonstrate to his first girlfriend that he was capable of conquering pain. Um, After defeats, he went home and punched a red sandbag until his knuckles bled. I mean, he's, he's an absolute psycho, frankly. Um, The sides would go on to face each other in a penalty shootout in that world cup semi-final and Schumacher saved two penalties and celebrated vociferously. Uh, West Germany would go on to lose the final to Italy, as they would with Schumacher in goal again in 1986 against Argentina. This incident stoked anti-German sentiment throughout France. Schumacher beat Adolf Hitler in a newspaper poll of France's biggest enemies. Oh, goodness Uh, me. He said, and I quote, it sounded like I was going to trigger the next war. So much hatred I had never felt before. I mean, this was a player who had 422 caps for Köln. He led them to three DFB Pokals and a Bundesliga. Um, one appearance at Borussia Dortmund delivered him a Bundesliga title as well. And he went on to have stints around the world. He won two Turkish Player of the Year awards whilst at Fenerbahce. 76 caps for West Germany. I mean, a great player, but just remembered for that one incident as a bit of a psychopath. Um, a, a reckless, reckless challenge that fortunately um, didn't leave any lasting injury to Battiston, but it was a very, very scary moment for him. Yeah, true. I mean, a, a, like you say, a good player marred by World Cup headlines. And actually the 82 World Cup, you know, I've read was violent across the board, really. That was one of the outstanding things about the World Cup. Yes, there were teams making their debuts. The likes of Kuwait and New Zealand made their debut in Spain 82. But actually, yeah, a a lot of the headlines were around these violent challenges. And Schumacher was probably the most famous of those. So first centre-back, I've gone with Pierre Issa. Okay, yeah, I don't... Doesn't ring too many bells for me. Well, a gargantuan centre-half who (laughs) hit the World Cup headlines in South Africa for the wrong reasons. Uh, And this was at my favourite World Cup, Arthur, uh, 1998 World Cup. Um, And part of the reason Issa was so prominent in the newspapers at the time was that he was a surprise call-up for South Africans. And that's because despite the fact he was born in South Africa, Issa was of Lebanese descent. So when manager Philippe Troussier selected him, it was a little bit controversial. But the reason for his back page turmoil was that Issa endured possibly the most error-strewn World Cup of all time. (laughs) Drawn in a group with France, Denmark and Saudi Arabia, Bafana Bafana were given little hope of progressing and they weren't helped by their towering centre-back. In the first game against France, he scored two own goals and missed his side's only clear-cut chance at the other end. And the two own goals were genuinely dreadful. The first, he slid in to divert a harmless shot past his own keeper, who was on the verge of claiming easily. And the second, arguably even more comedic, as he sprinted to keep a Thierry Henry chip out on the goal line, he stopped it with his left before tapping it in inadvertently with his flailing right. It was truly hapless. And then in the third game of the group, Issa conceded not one, but two penalties, resulting in a 2-2 draw against the group's last place team, Saudi Arabia. So South Africa came third with two draws and bowed out. 
Um, so just an absolutely disastrous clown-like performance by someone who was already on the back pages in South Africa for his controversial call-up. Really terrible. Not ideal. But France were obviously the winners of that World Cup. Zidane instrumental in the final. That's one final that really is probably the first one that really sticks in my mind. Uh, just a rampant victory against Brazil 3-0 in the final. Um, but I think that the, the sort of wild cards of the tournament who really exceeded expectations were probably Croatia. Yeah. Um, to finish third, Davos Suka, top goal scorer with six goals. Phenomenal performance to beat Germany 3-0 in the quarterfinals as well. So, um, yeah, definitely got to sort of doff our cap to the Croats in that. Yeah, they were outstanding. Uh, we've had the rampant right back, Robert Yarny, in one of our 11s as well. So do check out some of our, our previous episodes to learn more about him. Issa's misery actually continued domestically out of interest. He was involved in a bizarre debacle in 2001. He signed on loan for Chelsea from Marseille, aged 26 at the time. So no young prodigy. And he never played a single game. So what a loan that was. He was then signed by Watford and in 15 games did so little to impress the Hornets that he was put on the transfer list just five months later. And in one of his meagre 15 games for the club, he was carried off the field on a stretcher only to be dropped by the medical team. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, calamitous beyond belief for Pierre Issa. I'm sure he's a lovely guy, but he hit the World Cup headlines for the wrong reasons. Another centre-back alongside him. We've got another African in this okay. 11. It's Mwepu Ilunga. Oh, yeah, the um, the free kick, right? Absolutely. This is a player who enjoyed a long and distinguished career, winning two African championships with TP Mazembe in 1967 and 68, and helping Zaire, uh, which is modern-day Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, become the first sub-Saharan African nation to reach the World Cup finals in 1974. And you're right, he sensationally made headlines in that tournament as Brazil lined up to take a free kick with star men Rivellinho and Jairzinho over the ball, uh, the defender broke free of the Zaire wall and booted the ball as far as he could. It's become a comical World Cup moment, um, something that John Motson termed a bizarre moment of African ignorance, which actually has been proven to be incredibly tone deaf. Ilunga said in an interview in 2010, I did that deliberately. I was aware of football regulations. I did not have a reason to continue getting injured whilst those who will benefit financially were sitting on the terraces watching. I know the rules very well, but the referee was quite lenient and only gave me a yellow card. In fact, the truth about this act lies on the darker side of football history. Mm. Zaire at the time were under the rule of fierce dictator Mobutu Sese Seko. He'd changed the name from Congo to Zaire in 1971 after seizing power in a coup and ordered locals to use their African names and banned all clothing from the Western world. He invested heavily in football as it was a sport that he hoped could show his country on the national stage. Uh, he recalled several players who'd moved abroad, often against their will, and began attempting to qualify for that World Cup in Germany. They boasted their most talented side of a generation. It included Ricky Mavumba, Kazadi Mwamba, and top scorer at the AFCON in 1974, 
Malamba and Dai. Uh, and they performed admirably in their first game um, against a confident Scotland side that featured Dennis Law, Billy Bremner, Kenny Dalgleish. Uh, they fell to only a 2-0 defeat, which was respectable. But that, I'm afraid, was the high point of the tournament. Um, a dispute about match payments broke out. Many players believed that the officials from their country had taken their money. Uh, and as chaos broke out amongst the squad, they were eventually given 3,000 Deutschmarks by FIFA to convince them to play. In the next match, however, the Leopards looked out of sorts and were 3-0 down after 20 minutes against Yugoslavia. Um Things took a turn for the worse when first-choice goalkeeper Kazim Wamba was replaced by five-foot-four understudy Tubalandu Ndimbi. And the controversial thing about this was that Ndimbi was a friend of one of the Zaire officials who was in attendance and was keen to see him play. Zaire went on to lose 9-0, a World Cup record defeat. But the, the thing that puts the free kick incident in perspective was that there were subsequent threats made by Mobutu should they lose by more than three goals to the reigning champions Brazil there would be consequences and this terrified the players they were 2-0 down entering the final stages of the game and Ilunga was essentially trying to run the clock down they lost 3-0 and were allowed to return home albeit in clouds of disappointment you know they'd failed on the national stage but this is a moment that whilst it looks comical was really far from comical yeah an undertone of political upheaval really and that's such a shame for Zaire Uh, actually you mentioned Mwepu Alunga's free kick and his attempts to get sent off there that actually wasn't the only time he tried to get sent off in the tournament during the 9-0 defeat to Yugoslavia, he actively kicked the referee up the backside to try and get sent off. Um, but in a case of mistaken identity, it was actually Malamba and Dai that was sent off by the referee. Um, so, yeah, Mwepu was definitely the kind of forefront character of Zaire's protest during the tournament. And that makes for an iconic World Cup headline. Yeah, Mobutu went on to remove funding from football and he put it into boxing um obviously people remember well the rumble in the jungle between Foreman and Ali and that took place in Zaire yeah an interesting deep dive into the history of Zaire welcome and Wepu Ilunga love that alongside him Fabio Cannavaro oh a very yeah this is unlike you Ben a very mainstream name It is mainstream, but I wanted a defender who'd made the headlines for the right reasons. Um, And I can't remember a player whose performances at a World Cup enhanced his reputation as much as Fabio. We're talking 2006. Italy win the World Cup in a tetchy final against France. Cannavaro is the captain and his performances were Herculean. One of his key performances came in a 2-0 extra time win against host Germany in the semi-finals of the tournament. In the last minute of extra time, with Italy leading 1-0 and facing a German attack, Cannavaro out-jumped Per Mertesacker to clear the ball from his area. He ran forward to dispossess Lucas Podolski and carried the ball up to Francesco Totti, who started the play that led to Italy's second goal. And in that year, Cannavaro won the Ballon d'Or, the silver ball, FIFA Player of the Year, 
And he was, of course, in the team of the tournament for the World Cup. I thought it was excellently summed up by Amy Lawrence of The Guardian. She said, Cannavaro has been the most accomplished defender at this World Cup. He's been the only permanent member of Italy's ever-changing backline. He's been imperious, rigorous, absolutely in charge. Standing tall at five foot nine, he is dwarfed by just about every other centre-half in Germany. Yet he has risen serenely above them all, seemingly without a bead of sweat. And that's quite right. He was never going to win the physical battles throughout his career, Cannavaro. But he more than made up for it with his tactical awareness, positional sense and anticipation. And don't get me wrong, he did show all of these at club level. Um, He played for Parma, Inter, Juventus and Real Madrid. But I don't think he ever stood out in the same way as he did in 2006. Uh, And actually, that is backed up by the fact that almost all of his individual accolades as a player came that year in 2006. And in terms of domestic success, despite playing for those great sides, he only has two league titles and one UEFA Cup to speak of. So, um, yeah, it was just an amazing year for Cannavaro and and he was rightly the headline maker, I felt, despite Zidane's antics in the final. Yeah, I mean, for a defender to win Ballon d'Or is truly astonishing frankly, in, a, in, a, in an age where it's pretty much just whoever scores the most goals and gets the most assists. And to set that sort of impression off the back of an unbelievable World Cup really says all you need to know about him. Italy have been known for a breed of confident defender ever since the days of Nesta, uh, Materazzi, Chiellini these days. They're a defensive powerhouse and... Cannavaro sort of summed that up incredibly well in that World Cup. He sure did. And let's look at this team on the whole. With Issa and Ilunga, we definitely need a quality defender in this side. So Cannavaro's there. A name, an obscure name that I don't think you would have thought would be mentioned in a piece about Fabio Cannavaro. John Parkin tells a great <laughs> a great tale about um, his Stoke City side playing Real Madrid in a pre-season friendly uh, and he exchanged shirts with Cannavaro, Cannavaro insisting that he got Parkins in return. Um, and he, he likes to joke with his friends that his quadruple XL Stoke shirt has got pride of place in the Cannavaro household. Jokev, lots of deflections, and the final one is by Issa. An own goal gives Brandt some breathing space. Extraordinary sequence. Deflection first by uh, Henri, finally by Issa. Ahead of this year's World Cup in Qatar, that's, this is the reason we thought that a World Cup eleven would be appropriate. And Ben and I have taken on a challenge that could result in ridicule yes. in eight years' time. Um, <laughs> We've decided that we want to predict England's starting lineup in the first match of the 2030 World Cup. Oh, God. Now, the context of this is that I've always found it fascinating seeing the foot in mouth, terrible predictions for future World Cup teams. Some examples in 2013, the Independent predicted England's team to win the 2022 World Cup. And the starting lineup was Butland, Smalling, Nathaniel Shalaber, 
Phil Jones, Luke Shaw, only one who might be correct. Okay. Jordan Ibe, Jack Wilshire, Ross Barkley, Wilfred Zaha, who's Ivorian, Daniel, <laughs> Daniel Sturridge, and Tuba Akpom. Oh, great. Yeah, they were so close. So in the context of that, Ben and I have each had a go at putting together our 11s. And uh, I'll start off. In goal, I've got Ramsdale, uh, who'll be 32 at the time. I okay. think that's a decent shout. Yeah, that seems uh, sensible. A back four of Tino Livramento, 27, Taylor Harwood-Bellis, 28, Levi Colwell, 27, and wow. Ryan Sessignon, 30. Okay. Yeah. Uh, centre midfield of Jude Bellingham, 27, and Carney Chukwameka, who's going to be 27 as well. Right. Uh, and then three behind the striker of Bino Gittens, who'll be 26. Okay. <laughs> Phil Foden, 29, and Bakaya Saka, 29. And they're behind a striker on his own, and this is a bit brogue, <laughs> of Follerin Balogun, who's going to be 29. <laughs> <laughs> any, any immediate thoughts with that 11? I mean, it sounds quite strong. I feel like you've played it quite safe. Like, it I feel safe. like you've got some names in there that I would expect to be in there. Um, I think I think the um, the potential sort of slightly embarrassing ones could be Bino Gittens, Balogun, yeah. Harwood Bellis. He's certainly not proved himself yet. A few loans okay. in the championship. Uh, Ryan Sessignon as an out and out left back in this team rather than left wing back could be, could be bold. I had for some period of time considered Wilson Esbrand, the, uh, okay. the, the left back for Man City. And then sure. I slightly chickened yeah. out and replaced him with the slightly more experienced Ryan Sessegnon. So maybe, you know, Wilson Esbrand could get back in that. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. How about wow. you, Ben? Um, I'm not, I mean, I'm really nervous to even say this because it feels absolutely ridiculous. Um, but yeah, here we go. I'm there to be shot at. So in goal, um, we've got James Trafford, who <laughs> is currently on loan at Bolton from Man City. Okay. Um, okay. He'll be 27 and he's going to emerge as the kind of the new Joe Hart, I think, cool. by then. Um, playing at sort of right wing back in a back five is Cody Drame. He'll be aged 27. Uh, he's a lead right back. He had a good spell on loan at Cardiff. He's going to be great. And he's going to be so good, in fact, that he's pushed Reese James, age 30, into a centre-back role. Um, <laughs> he's going to do a sort of Azpilicueta shift into the centre, I think, as a kind of Chelsea stalwart by then. I've also got Levi Colwell. Uh, nice. I think he'll come through. I think we both feel that there's just something about Levi Colwell, despite the fact that we've probably never seen him play. The, oh, um, I had a keen eye on Huddersfield's promotion campaign last season. Yeah, and you uh, thought he was really good. And, and you know, whenever your team is linked with a player, you you obviously look at all the YouTube videos. And Southampton yeah. were linked with him this summer before he he chose Brighton. Okay. Um, so I, I do feel like he's got a touch of class about him, and uh, everyone thinks he's going to be good. So surely, yes. we're not in, we're not in that boat on our own. Really, he'll be good. He'll be good. I'm sure of it. And then left-sided centre-half, when you actually sent this brief to me, Arthur, I was sat watching Reading play Sunderland and there was a guy who was young and quite good. And that was my kind of remit, really, for picking players for this team. So I looked him up and he is indeed English. I'm going to go for Aji Alisi. 
Um, so he's going to be he's going to be twenty nine, but he's going to have had a, a good spell playing for like a I don't know, maybe Forest Green in the Premier League by then. I do remember your infamous prediction that Jordan Abita would be England's yes. left back. So um, this feels like one of those. Good. Left back is going to be Bukayo Saka. Um, okay. He's going to get really bored with the whole attacking thing, and he's going to kind of transition back to left back. So that's that's all good. Okay. Um, and then in front of them, we've kind of got a four of uh, Jude Bellingham, who yep. I think you've probably heard of. Yep. Um, Jacob Ramsey. He okay. Maybe 29, um, Aston Villa player, quite like him. Harvey Elliott, he will be 27, a bit of creativity. And Cole Palmer, who Ooh. will be 28, sort of Man City attacking midfielder. Um, don't know, I, Cole is quite an iconic name when it comes to England players of the past. So that <laughs> kind of felt right. Um, and Cole I certainly, Palmer, uh... I, I, yeah, it just felt like an England esque name, to be honest. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. And I've read a lot about his, his range of passing. Yeah. It's apparently uh, incredibly impressive. Man City have high hopes of him. He'll be good. Um, maybe even better than Phil Foden. Who knows? Yeah, I think if Pep's kept hold of him for this long, he must be okay. Mm. And um, and then up front, we've got someone who was born in Canada, but I'm pretty confident he'll pledge his allegiance to England after massive discussion. And that's Sheffield United striker Daniel Jebison. Oh, Jefferson will be yes. seven going into this World Cup. So, um, yeah, that's my team. Jefferson really burst onto the scene in Sheffield United's last season in the Premier League. A young 16, 17 year old coming off the bench always draws the eyes, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a decent shout there. I think you've, you've definitely played it a little bit less safe than I have. I mean, yeah. I, the last thing I want is in eight years' time. Um, we will be tweeting these teams. Um, I don't want my my eleven dug out of the archives and ridiculed in eight years' time. So, um, yeah, Ben, you've you've certainly put your reputation on the line more than I have. Yeah. Um, but an interesting discussion on on what we think England's going to look like in the future. Do we think that you know this might be the start of a dynasty? Not with that team, no. <laughs> Left midfield, and it's Saeed Al Awiran. Oh, um, <laughs> iconic goal! Yes, you're correct. Uh, this was in USA 1994, an excellent tournament that sadly England nor any of the home nations were part of. Um, financially successful tournament, despite the game's lack of relative lack of popularity in the country. Um, they broke the overall tournament attendance record with nearly 3.6 million people turning up to watch games. And I think that record actually remains to this day. I think it's largely due to the fact that there are, in general, just larger stadia in the States. And so they can um, gain those records. The major tournament overperformer was a stoichkov fueled Bulgaria who, having never won a game in five previous World Cup finals, stormed to the semi-final, uh, where they were narrowly defeated by Italy. And Saudi Arabia were another to impress. And it was Al Awaren who really got the ball rolling within five minutes of the start of their game against Belgium. He collected the ball and made an exhilarating 70-yard run 
that would result in an extraordinary winner for his team. He gathered the ball deep in his own half, charged almost the entire length of the pitch with a fine burst of pace, skipped past a couple of Belgian defenders whilst controlling the ball with ease, and he then casually slotted the ball past Michel Prudhomme, who actually won best goalkeeper in the tournament, to send Saudi Arabia into the knockout stages incredibly. They would lose to eventual third-place finishers Sweden, um, but it was a huge overachievement. Alawaran said, it was the best goal I ever scored in my life. I scored it for every Saudi person in the world, for every Arab. He was presented with a Rolls-Royce upon his return to Saudi Arabia and became a national icon, also having been named Asian Footballer of the Year. There is a bit of a, a sad end to this story. Uh, in the fact that despite interest from European clubs, he was unable to leave the country due to a national law preventing Saudi footballers from playing abroad. Therefore, he remained a, wub- a one-club man uh, with Al-Shabaab, and the restriction is perhaps what sent him towards drink and women, something which prompted a one-year ban from football and suspended prison sentence. He said, because that goal put me in the spotlight, Everyone was focusing on me. In some ways, it was great. In others, it was awful. I've, met, I've seen this goal maybe a thousand times now, and I'm honestly fed up with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, yeah, for his sake, don't go show him the goal, but I would urge you to, to, to head to YouTube or any other streaming platform to check it out because it is pretty astonishing. It really is an, an incredible run from his own half. And it makes me think, actually, he's a, a great pick for a left mid when we don't have a left back. He can get back and help Pierre Issa out at the other end. I don't think he's going to be doing much of that. I think, you know, although he was very deep in his own half, but I think he'll he'll be looking to make progressive runs rather than, you know, bone shattering challenges. Yeah, love that. Brilliant. Al-Shabaab, interestingly, if you want an obscure player that used to play for them, what about Sunderland's former midfielder, Alfred and Die? <laughs> there we go. Nothing to do with the World Cup. Just inside Alawiran, it's our centre midfielder, Claudio Reyna. Oh, what a he's a he's a player that I've always just enjoyed. Especially I think there's certain certain charm about a player whose offspring is now lighting it up in world football yeah Giovanni named after Giovanni Van Bronckhorst actually is he um yeah he is oh. I don't know why <laughs> <laughs> he was um, he was so underrated Claudio Reyna when I was doing my research I was looking at some Sunderland fans responses to a question of the five best players they've ever seen play for the club and almost all had Reyna in there he was sublimely talented and surely should have played for a better club side, even though he did play for Man City, but at a time when they were fundamentally quite shite. Rayner was named in four World Cup squads for the USA, so he's partly in this eleven for his ever-presence. But also he was perhaps a surprising name in the 2002 World Cup team of the tournament. This was the World Cup in Korea and Japan. I'm going to put my neck out and say he's the most heralded US World Cup player of all time. In that tournament, Reyna starred for his time in a surprise run to the quarterfinals. He actually didn't register a single goal or assist, and he missed the opening win against Portugal. So it's all the more remarkable that he made the all-star team. But on that run, USA drew with South Korea, lost to Poland, 
scrape through and then beat Mexico before eventually exiting against Germany. And maybe this award, despite no significant contribution, explains the title of his 2004 book, More Than Goals. It's described on Amazon as a part autobiography, part inside story, part social commentary and part advanced instructional guide. So make that what you will. I don't, I don't know what that means. But I actually thought that Rainer's most interesting World Cup titbit came from his first World Cup squad in 94. Uh, he was a youngster and he would be an unused player throughout due to injury. Uh, USA were hosting that World Cup, of course, and concerned about giving a good account of themselves, they went to extreme measures to ensure this was the case. The United States Soccer Federation began signing top US players to contracts, making the US national team a de facto professional club. Sometimes they would loan out US players to club teams, recalling them for national games, but other times they wouldn't even do that. So they were essentially players out there, top US players who only played for the national team. Bora Militinovic, their manager, set up residency in California before devising a schedule of 91 friendlies to give his newly assembled squad a crash course in international football. He essentially turned them into a club side um, with only four professionals playing abroad at the time of the World Cup. They developed an edge that couldn't be matched by any other team going into the tournament. He said, we all know one of the biggest challenges for national team coaches is the limited time you have together. So for the core of the team to be based in residency and basically play seasons of games together gave us an international edge. It worked. USA didn't disgrace themselves. They got out the group, ultimately losing to the champions, Brazil. Uh, and Rainer was one of those US contracted players. So if you look at his kind of CV through the years, there is a period of time that's missing. And that's when he was a full time US international. Incredibly bizarre. Thank you for recounting that. Um, but when he did play club football, that Man City side, I really enjoyed, you know, the likes of Kiki Musampa. Antoine Sibierski, John Macken in that team alongside him. I've also always been quite intrigued by Willow Flood. Yes. I don't, I don't know why, because he really played very little for Man City and then played sort of a little bit in the lower leagues and then in Scotland. But um, yeah, Willow was a fan of. Uh, and that 2002 FIFA World Cup, um, I mean, I, I like pointing out the overachievers. And in that one, it was Turkey. Uh, they finished third. Hassan Sass was incredibly good in that. Uh, I think Alpe Ozalan was incredibly in that team of the tournament. Um, so um, well done, Turkey. But it was a World Cup where Brazil were just an absolute cut above everybody else. Um, Turkey lost two games in that in that tournament. They were both to Brazil, one in the group stages, one in the in the semifinals. Um, Ronaldo eight goals. I mean, they were just absolutely unplayable that year. So in the centre of midfield. It is Wesley Schneider. Yes, deserved. Love that. Yeah. He's a player I just absolutely love. Um, but he's not really considered in the same breath as the likes of Robin. Um, I think, you know, five years, 125 caps at Galatasaray, who's, I mean, not really the absolute peak of, of football in Europe, um, su suggests that perhaps this was a case of what I love to term another unfulfilled potential. <laughs> uh, 
He, um, he arrived at the 2010 World Cup off the back of an incredible treble with Inter Milan, Serie A, Coppa Italia and the Champions League. Ben, you remember the, the 2010 World Cup. What do, what do you remember it for in particular? Mainly Vuvuzela's. Yeah, I mean, it is the Vuvuzela. He was therefore full of confidence as he scored the winning goal for the Dutch in a 1-0 victory over Japan in the, in the opening game of the World Cup. He was selected as man of the match in his first two matches of the group stage. In the Netherlands round of 16 match against Slovakia, he scored in a 2-1 victory. He also provided what was at first thought to be an assist for the first goal against Brazil in the quarterfinals. Um, but he was later credited with the goal. I think you referenced that uh, in uh, in Felipe Melo's um, character assassination in the uh, in, in the previous episode. Um, yeah, I think we can turn the Vuvuzela off now. Actually, <laughs> it is so <laughs> irritating. Yeah. I don't think we need to be reminded of the 2010 <laughs> horrendous Vuvuzela. But there we go. He scored a header off a corner in that same game and consigned Brazil to a 2-1 defeat, bringing his goal total in the tournament to four. And he was again named man of the match. In the semi-final against Uruguay, he scored again in the 70th minute, meaning that he topped the goal-scoring charts in the World Cup alongside David Villa. The Netherlands won the match 3-2 and got to the World Cup final. Again, Schneider was man of the match. It was just an absolutely incredible individual tournament for the man. Spain awaited in the final. Iniesta scored an extra time to deliver Spain's first ever World Cup. So it wasn't the glorious conclusion that the Netherlands had foreseen. Wes wasn't pleased. He said, Howard Howard Webb robbed us. This really is a disgrace to football. It shouldn't have happened. He claims Iniesta should have been sent off and was offside for the deciding goal. To me, this sounds a little bit like sour grapes, but it doesn't detract from an incredible World Cup for him. That's four man of the matches, five goals. You know, this was an elite playmaker um, who was deployed in a kind of new role in the World Cup, later termed as a false 10 or a central winger due to his tendency to drift from the centre of the pitch into a wide position when he had possession of the ball. It was a team managed by Louis van Gaal, who I consider to be kind of one of those elite tournament managers. He just is incredibly good at getting the best out of a a team in in that kind of tournament scenario. Um, Wesley had 134 caps for the Netherlands. That's the most ever, Mm. which again shocks me considering... You know, his his club career, other than that, that stint for Real Madrid wasn't actually that elite at all, really. Real Madrid and Inter Milan, um, but not particularly lengthy periods of time there. And Galatasaray, as I say, 125 caps, you know, that's 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 a lot of his career. Yeah, I, I thought Wesley Schneider was such a good player. I absolutely love that. And and I guess one of the iconic things about the Netherlands at the World Cup is that distinctive orange kit. Um, I noticed when Schneider did break the record for the most capped Dutch player, he was awarded a, uh, a Holland shirt, a bespoke Holland shirt, with all 15 of the year's um, shirts kind of patched up into one. It's it's an incredible looking thing. It's well That's worth so checking cool. out. 
I'll try and post it on our social media at 11pod. Moving to the right side, and if you've listened to the 11 before, you'll know there is always a player that is up for grabs, our 11th man, uh, and we encourage football personalities, journalists, sports people to get in touch with their nominations. We have a couple of those today. You'll find out at the end of this show who is going to be on a poll on Twitter at 11pod where you can vote for our right midfield berth. But for now, let's move forward. And we've got three very attacking players, Arthur. But I'm just going to sit this one just in behind because he did play a bit as a kind of number 10 false nine-esque player. And this is someone who made the headlines for the right reasons in a World Cup which made headlines for the wrong reasons. It's Mario Kempesh. I can't remember that name that well. So it's in 1978. Um, and the World Cup was held in Kempesh's nation, Argentina. Argentina won the tournament, their first, but it was riddled with scandal and suggestions of corruption. Argentina had undergone a military coup of its democratic government only two years before the Cup, and it was suspected that the new dictatorship was less than savoury. So Argentina's controversial and favourable refereeing decisions in their matches have caused many to view their eventual win as illegitimate. Many cite the political climate and worldwide pressure on the Argentine government as the reason for these decisions, uh, and most notably, uh, in a politically motivated climate, the hosts won by an unprecedented six-goal margin against Peru to progress to the final, which surpassed the four-goal deficit they needed to overturn. Just seemed a little convenient at the time. But despite this, Kempesh deserved headline plaudits. He scored six goals, three braces, including two in the final against the Netherlands. He also won the golden boot and the golden ball. But he produced surely the funniest moment, too, of that World Cup. With Argentina leading 1-0 against Poland, Kempesh denied Zabinho Boniek an equaliser with a handball uncannily similar to Luis Suarez's infamous save against Ghana 32 years later. It was a sprawling dive, ludicrous to watch. Um, And despite a penalty being given, there was no need for VAR on that one. Kempes was not sent off or indeed booked. And Ubaldo Filiol saved Kashmir's Dana's penalty. To make things worse, Kempes scored again in that game. Uh, to seal the win for Argentina. Really is worth checking out that handball, Arthur, if you haven't already. I haven't, but players going to extreme lengths to stop goal-bound shots. I mean, one that really does stick in my mind is Steve Cook for Bournemouth. <laughs> yes. It's an absolutely horrendous one. <laughs> it really was. Um, I-, I guess this is the equivalent of that, but on the world's biggest footballing stage. Um, but you, you mentioned Kempesh didn't really ring too many bells, and I, I'm sort of I'm sort of shocked and surprised that more people don't talk about him. He scored 322 goals in a 598 game career for club and country. Um, despite a lot of club hopping, that is, he played for Rosario and River in Argentina, uh, Valencia and Hercules in Spain, as well as clubs in Austria, Indonesia, and Albania. And his brief managerial career took him to new places too, including Bolivia to manage the strongest and blooming two amazing club names. 
Yeah, they really are. I also quite enjoy, this is very Ben Warden-esque on Wikipedia. I'm seeing (laughs) for his commentary career, he has provided, um, along with two others, the commentary in the Latin American version of the FIFA franchise. And so they go on to list the video games he's done it in. And it's FIFA 13, FIFA 14, FIFA 15, FIFA 16, FIFA 17, FIFA 18, FIFA 19, FIFA 20, FIFA 21, FIFA 2022. <laughs> that is very me. Um, but yeah, let's listen to a bit of that commentary. It's great. Oh, I can't get enough. Spanish commentary on FIFA is so much more enjoyable than ours. It really is. What an excellent, excellent pick there. Welcome, Mario Kempes. And playing ahead of him is Francois Oman Biek. Yeah, I haven't heard of him, Arthur. So this is a player who started out as a goalkeeper. He later played as a defender before converting into a striker at the age of 16. He spent much of his career hopping between French clubs in various leagues and the Mexican League. And he was prolific at various points. But in 1990, we find him at French second division side Laval. And rank outsiders Cameroon are facing reigning world champions Argentina. Maradona was mercurial. Uh, The indomitable Lions knew they had to be aggressive in the challenge and take their chances. And aggressive they were. Their two red cards were entirely justified. But six minutes after the first of those red cards, Oman Biak found himself in the box as a free kick was floated in and flicked on by fellow forward Cyril Makanaki. He leapt an outrageous height and sent a header into the ground at goal. What really should have been a routine save from Neri Pumpado was spilt and Cameroon had the lead. Backs against the wall, they keep Argentina at bay for a historic win. A quarterfinal defeat, 3-2 to England, would break hearts, but the team were heroes Uh, particularly Francois Oman Biak with his giant leap. And actually, that aerial ability has led to the term Oman Biak being used as a nickname for a headed goal in his homeland. Oh, really? (laughs) I imagine Patrick and Bomber scored a few of them then. Yeah, for sure. They all loved to Oman Biak whenever they could. Yeah. Uh, He took part in high jumping at school and said that he was born with his heading ability. I mentioned those two red cards. Interestingly, his brother, Andre Kanabiek, was the one who received the first of those reds. After being suspended in the next game, he picked up yellow cards in the following two matches, which meant he was suspended for that quarterfinal against England. Mm -hmm. And that, I believe, makes him the first and so far only player to serve two suspensions in one tournament. Wow. (laughs) But Frankie Omambiak, I don't know whether he gets called Frankie, but I'm, I'm christening him that. <laughs> uh, scored a total of 26 goals in 73 appearances. He's Cameroon's record World Cup appearance maker, 11 matches, three goals. 
I think Roger Miller obviously is is the is the Cameroonian striker who who is sort of most well renowned, uh, and he actually scored four goals in that 1990 World Cup at 38 years old. But I just think Oman Biak isn't renowned as he should be, and scoring such a crucial goal against such an amazing side really shows what an important name he is and what a headliner he was. Mm, Good pick. And really one for all of those minnows in the World Cup who have made a surprise uh, passage, really, through to the the knockout stages. I'm thinking South Korea. You mentioned Turkey. We mentioned Senegal earlier. Um, I can't wait to find out who the 2022 minnow will be that makes that breakthrough. The other striker is Hector Castro. Hector Castro. Was he an iconic Mexican striker? No, he wasn't no. actually, Arthur. No, okay. he was Uruguayan. my mind's eye, he was. <laughs> I think he's still Uruguayan, you know. Uruguayan. Um, although I think, I think he has sadly passed. Um, he, oh. he was a World Cup trailblazer, actually. He scored the hosts, Uruguay's first World Cup goal in the first ever World Cup in 1930. He also scored the winning goal in the World Cup final as Uruguay beat Argentina 4-2. Castro himself was a robust player, an old-fashioned centre-forward in many respects. He wasn't particularly graceful, nor was he blessed with fine technique. He was effective, though, quick, strong and with a lethal finish to boot. But that said, he was a bit part player in this inaugural World Cup and had a fight on his hands to win a place back in the starting level. Or should I say hand? Hector Castro had one hand. In fact, he only had one arm. What? It's an unbelievable story, Arthur. Hector Castro. Sorry, post-playing career? No, during. While playing in the World Cup, the the winner and the scorer of the winning goal in the first World Cup final had one arm. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Castro was born in extreme poverty and forced to work from the age of 10. Uh, He operated heavy machinery and one day managed to cut his right forearm off with an electric saw. This somehow didn't hold him back and he continued to pursue his dream of being a footballer. He would actually often use his stump apparently to gain leverage on opponents when rising for headers and was seemingly fearless. He became known as El Divino Manco, which translates as the maimed god. And he had a successful 15-year career, winning the World Cup, an Olympic gold, two Copper Americas, and becoming the fourth highest scorer in Uruguayan history at the time of his retirement. Just an incredible man. I mean, what a strength of character to, to effectively have such a tragic injury at a young age, continue to pursue your dream, and become an iconic World Cup headliner. He simply had to be in this team. He really did. That's a phenomenal pick. And just to have, you know, an appendage missing mm. in uh, in a player in an eleven. I think you've you've done very very well to uh, to, to find him. I it's it shocks me that I didn't know that. I mean, that 1930 World Cup. I think you know it's renowned for the host nation Uruguay winning and surprising Brazil in that final. But the fact that it was, ah, oh, that's such a brilliant story. Thank you so much for sharing that then. That's absolutely fine, Arthur. 
on to up for grabs. It's time to pick the right midfield position in this 11. A couple of nominations in for this one. First up is World Cup Rewind. Thank you so much, Aid, for sending in a nomination. Uh, They are a fantastic Twitter page that do a little deep dive into the brilliant moments of World Cups gone by. Uh, I'm sure they'll have some absolutely fantastic content ahead of this World Cup. So do head to Twitter to check them out. He sent in this nomination. Okay, so when I was considering uh, who who I would choose as a right midfielder stroke right winger for the uh, World Cup headliners 11, uh, it didn't take me too long until I uh, decided on um, this former Poland international. Um, He was uh, top scorer at the 1974 World Cup in West Germany with seven goals. And with 10 goals in total, he sits joint eighth on the list of all-time top scorers at World Cup finals, uh, along with the likes of Gary Lineker, Gabriel Batistuta and uh, Thomas Muller. Uh, Now, he also helped Poland to secure third place at the 1974 and 1982 World Cup finals. Um, And certainly in his homeland, he was renowned really for his uh, his consistency on the international stage and somebody who always delivered um so with all that in mind my pick for the right midfield berth would be former poland international zegos lato really interesting pick actually poland another side that probably upset the odds to get as far as they did in world cups and uh, gregor's lato not a player that I'd heard of actually before this research, interestingly, but um, certainly came up a few times when I was browsing articles. So do check out World Cup Rewind. It's essentially a better version of what we've just done, but on Twitter. So you don't even have to listen to it. So that's great, isn't it? Go check them out. And our second nomination comes in from an author. It's Aidan Williams. He is a football writer and podcaster. Uh, he works for These Footy Times and he's been featured on The Guardian. Um, But he's also a World Cup obsessive and the author of the book, The Nearly Men, which tracks some of the teams that were excellent, but just about failed to win the World Cup. So um, some really interesting insight there. Let's see who he nominates. My pick for right midfield or right wing is the great, the legendary Brazilian Jairzinho, the World Cup hurricane. He wasn't simply a part of the greatest international side there's ever been, the 1970 Brazil team, of course. But he was a key part in it, thanks to his speed, his skill and, of course, his goals. Jairzinho was one of the most complete forward players of all time. Fast as lightning, with a quick burst of acceleration. So strong that defenders just bounced off him. He had terrific skills, a happy knack for dribbling past his opponents. But more than all of that, his goal-scoring ability was simply astonishing. He's the only player in World Cup history to have scored in every match on the way to winning the tournament, which he did in 1970 which makes him a leading light in what was a stellar team. His seven goals in six games ranged from the spectacular to the simple. And despite that, he was still pipped to the golden boot that year by Gerd Muller. But no right winger has had an impact on the World Cup quite like him. So the World Cup hurricane, Jairzinho, is my pick. Yes, Jairzinho, an absolute icon of the game uh, and a very, very worthy consideration in this eleven. Definitely. I, it's incredible, actually, that we still haven't had a Brazilian name in our team. So um, let's give them extra chance of getting a name in the team by my nomination in the poll, which is also a Brazilian. And it's Garincha. Garincha. 
Yeah. I don't really know distinctly what he did other than just being a very good Brazilian. Yeah, he was outstanding. And many think he was actually better than Pele playing at a very similar time. Uh, a nickname which means little bird. That's what Garincha was. Probably one of the best players of all time, to be honest. Widely regarded as the greatest dribbler. Uh, and this was mostly down to skill and pace. But another contributing factor was his unusual gait. He was born with his right leg six centimetres shorter than his left. And also his left leg turned outwards and his right leg turned inwards, leading one doctor to certify him as crippled as a child. So he acquired the pen name Bent Legged Angel throughout his playing career. And he played with such joy, little care for the personal achievements within the game, but a love of the game itself. He helped Brazil to win the 1958 and 1962 World Cups. Uh, and in 62, he also became the first player to win the Golden Ball, the Golden Boot and the World Cup in the same tournament. In fact, he was so exciting to watch that Inter Internazionale, AC Milan and Juventus of Italy considered jointly signing him in 1963. So essentially it would be a three-year contract and he would play one season at each club, which would have been an entirely unique deal. Um, but in the end... Why didn't, didn't one of them want to sign him? I think they, to... they sort of decided they couldn't really afford it. So it would be a sort of league signing, essentially, from the three top teams just to try and get him into Italian football. Um, but Garincha didn't care much for fame. Um, he remained in Brazil, enjoyed a drink and a party, had 14 kids and lived life his way. Um, so a joyful footballer and one for the pole. A slightly more modern day alternative to three players who were in their pomp really in the 60s, 70s, 80s, that sort of period, is James Rodriguez. Oh, 2014. He was sublime. Yeah, the 2014 World Cup, six goals for Colombia getting him into team of the tournament and winning in the golden boot. Uh, one of those strikes uh, famously versus Uruguay was goal of the tournament and winner of the Pushkas award. Uh, he chests it, turns, unleashes an unstoppable pile driver past Maslera in the goal. Um, incredible technique. Uh, I, the weird thing that I really like about it is the glance over his shoulder just before the turn. It's, it's sort of an artist at work, um, just incredible vision and technique. He's still only 31. Um, we typically like to pick nostalgic retired names, um, but he feels retired. <laughs> <laughs> you have just retired him. <laughs> he, he's playing for Olympiacos now. That World Cup prompted a frankly astounding £63 million move from Monaco to Real Madrid. He didn't do badly there at all. He scored at a rate of one in three there, but he it just didn't really fully click. What what are your thoughts of Hamez, Ben? I loved him at the 2014 World Cup. Thought he was the next big thing. And I've been slightly disappointed ever since. But I think that makes him a World Cup headliner. And Colombia, again, a team that have had their fair share of headlines in the World Cup. Not all for the right reasons. I'm thinking the death of Escobar. Um, but also the performances of players like Valderrama. So, yeah, I love to have a Colombian in there. Good pick. Good. So you'll be voting for him? No, I'll be voting for Garincha. 
Um, but ultimately, I think it's going to take more than you and I to decide. So at uh, 11 pod on Twitter, place your vote and complete our World Cup headliners 11. Alvaro Pereira hit by Hammers! Oh, what a goal! One of the greats! My word, this boy's a star! So a few that narrowly missed out and can be on our bench today. Um, We all remember Bobby Moore lifting the World Cup in 66, but then causing a stir in 1970, having allegedly stolen jewellery in Brazil, something he was later cleared of. Well, the same happened in 2002, Arthur, to none other than Kalilu Fadiga. He was handed a jewellery gift by a shop owner as a good luck charm but confused journalists claimed it had been stolen. Uh, And thankfully for him, the situation was cleared up in time for him to play for Senegal in that tournament. And of course, we know how well they did. So uh, Fadiga, who did get on the score sheet in that World Cup, is on the bench. Uh, And also Luis Hernandez, a shout out to my gran. Um, She used to watch that 98 video with me and she loved Hernandez just because of his beaming smile. Uh, What a great tournament he had that year. That's brilliant. And joining them on the bench is Dennis Burkamp. That brilliant goal in the 98 World Cup, a flick over the head of the defender and outside of the boot finish. It just looks so satisfying and sounds so satisfying. Just give this Dutch commentary a listen. With the ball for Frank de Boer. Frank de Boer spelt the ball. Heel goed naar Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp neemt de bal aan. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Just one of my, just one of my absolute favourites. It's just so so good. I'm sorry I couldn't find a starting berth for you, Dennis, but you will be an impact sub off the bench. Well, if you're new to the 11, I really hope you've enjoyed this rundown of World Cup headliners. We've got loads more episodes available for you on good podcast operators. Uh, This is our 11. In goal, Harold Schumacher. At the back, Pierre Issa, Mwepu Ilunga and Fabio Cannavaro. Across the midfield, Saeed Alawiran, Claudio Reyna, Wesley Schneider and a choice of yours on Twitter at 11pod. And then up front, we've got Mario Kempesh playing just in behind Francoise Oman and Hector Castro. Thank you so much for listening. It's coming up. Mm-hmm.